Welcome to AI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and most important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Gothari. In this episode, we have with us Professor Land Pritchett, an American development economist currently serving as the RISE Research Director at Blavatnik School of Government, University of Oxford. Several famous RCTs, Esther and Michael Kramer and I think Pascal Dupas, did an interesting study in Kenya of contract teachers. And by being able to randomize which students were exposed to the contract teachers and the non-contract teachers, they could get an estimate of the impact of contract teachers. Now, if you ask me, did that answer the question of contract teachers? Well, that's a little strong. We had had at least a dozen evaluated experiences of contract teachers, and everything that they found with respect to contract teachers was already relatively well known in the literature. So you really would say we're more confident in the answer that we already had. From evaluating health and education outcomes to evaluating poverty and policy implications, randomized control trials seem to have grabbed a center stage amongst impact evaluation techniques in the development space. But the larger question is, how can RCT impact policy intervention? Professor Pritchett talks about challenges in improving learning outcomes, meaning of foundational numeracy and literacy, RCTs, and other research and learning methods in education. On to Pranav now. Professor, there's so much effort going on. We are spending so much money on education. There are so many people working on it, both within the government and outside of it. Um, why is it that after years of all of this effort, uh, we aren't improving learning outcomes. I think it's because uh, systems assumed that, the, that if you pushed schooling, you would get learning. So if we think what we really want from an education system, we want to equip children with the skills they're going to need as adults. And not just to work in the labor market, to be, but to be parents, to be citizens, to engage in their society. So if you think, and I'm going to use my arms and things to make a graph because I'm an economist and a geek. And, uh, but, you know, so the real goal all along that people had in mind was um, learning. We're going to equip people with skills. And they thought schooling was the mechanism. But what connects those two things is what we call a learning profile which is how much do you learn per year of schooling? Right. And what we've learned, and the subtitle of my book, The Rebirth of Education, is schooling ain't learning. So we, did, we built systems that were super focused on expanding schooling. They, in fact, have expanded schooling. It's been one of the most unbelievably historical transformations in the world. It's a massive success. Everyone should be celebrating this success that you know, 50 years ago, something like uh, 2% of people would have completed schooling, and now 
you know, nearly every child in India enrolls in school and stays in for at least some time. And the amount of years of schooling the average person has has just gone up. So on the axis of schooling, enormous victory because in some sense, the system was geared to produce victory on schooling on the assumption that as you walked out schooling, you were walking up learning, but these learning profiles are produced, turning out to be much less steep than we would have thought. So we're getting to schooling goals and not getting to learning goals. And if you think, you know, what you're really measuring with just measuring schooling alone is time served. There's only one other phenomena that we measure as time served and it's prison. So a flat learning profile and just staying in school isn't a tremendous victory alone. What we wanted was the victory of getting to higher levels of capability. And we've just built systems that got a little too, way too, focused on moving out the schooling and not enough, are we really building the learning as we go? So India has actually made a lot of progress on the schooling front, right? We have a primary school within walking distance. Uh, you know, 99% of children are formally enrolled in some school. Uh, but the learning profile of those children in terms of, you know, where they should be as a function of age, as a function of a certain curriculum standard, isn't quite out there. But from the out... I think isn't quite is a euphemism for disastrous, chaotic, terrible. It's really, uh, it's really bad. But from the outside, it <laughs> yeah. looks like everything is happening, right? There's right. a school. Children right. are sometimes coming in ties to school. Right. There's right. Uh, transportation. Right. Midday meals are being provided. Right. So it looks like they're doing all the right things that, you right. know, from a menu of providing schooling should be done. Right. So I think a big problem that any organization, but often public sector organizations can fall into is a problem that I identify in a different book of mine about building capability, organizational capability, is you fall into what we call isomorphic mimicry, which is really just saying looking good versus being good. So in the world, animals all the time, they develop things to look scary, but they're not really effective, right? The blowfish, it blows itself up so it looks huge. It's not huge, it's just blowing itself up to look huge to deter a predator. So I worry that a lot of schooling systems, since they weren't effectively measuring learning outcomes, didn't have clear and coherent objectives about what the learning objectives were, and weren't, didn't have feedback loops about those, you just fall back on isomorphism. You fall back on, what does a good school look like? Well, a good school, you know, kids wear uniforms. Great, let's mandate that kids wear uniforms. But by copying the wearing of the uniform, you obviously don't necessarily produce the functionality. So the fact that in functional schools, kids were wearing uniforms, you know, the fact that a rich person drives a Mercedes doesn't mean if I get a Mercedes, I'm rich. Um, you're getting cause and effect backwards. And so I think around the world, there's been an enormous uh, emphasis on kind of isomorphism where we had an idea of what school should look like. We had an idea of what you know, how the school day should be, how schools should be organized, how things should look. And that has been successfully replicated because that really fits well with a kind of civil service bureaucracy, top-down hierarchical mode of being. Is if all I need to do is build the same concrete design school in every village in India, I can turn the existing civil service bureaucracy loose on that problem and they can solve it. 
If I want a caring, concerned, uh, adequately equipped teacher actually engaged in effective teaching practices in each of those concrete blocks, that's an enormously more challenging capability task. And it's hard to, you know, it, it, it's hard to, in some sense, get an organization that's geared into logistical mode out of logistical mode into performance and purpose mode. But are there certain actions or initiatives which look as if they are the right thing to do and also have an impact on learning outcomes? Right? So we talked about how uniforms aren't those. We talked about how you know, the logistics isn't those. But is there something that looks like the right thing to do and has an impact on learning outcomes? There are some, but, but I honestly don't think there are many. Um, and I have pretty good evidentiary reasons for believing that. So, for instance, take something like class size. You know, everybody in the world thinks reducing class size is a good thing. Are they right? Yeah. Meaning, in early grades, at super high levels, um, reducing class size is essential. So if you have a first grade with 100 kids in it, Nobody, not a supernatural deity, could effectively teach 100 kids the first grade curriculum, right? So if you say, you know, we need to reduce class size, that's a clear observable, let's focus on it. Yes, if you're at class sizes of very large sizes in very early grades, by all means do that. Once you're down to 30, we're reducing it to 20. But then the problem is you get locked into, well, let's make it reduced even further. I don't think the evidence is super powerful that a 30 versus a 20 person classroom really makes that much difference. And by the way, part of the finding of the contract evaluation in Kenya was that even pretty dramatic reductions in class size from pretty high levels with a civil service teacher didn't make any difference because it wasn't really the class size that was the constraint on performance. So I just think there's very few things because in part, um, I'm director of a research project called Research on Improving Systems of Education. And one of our key things is that the system has to be coherent around learning, which means everybody in the system has to actually understand and act on the purpose. And the purpose has to be understood to be a, an actionable definition of learning. Once you have organizations with purpose, they can actually perform well in a variety of circumstances and they might discover the things that were isomorphic because somebody else had discovered doing it this way worked for their purposes or in their context actually can be done in very different ways. So until you get to purpose, the visible indicators just aren't that helpful really and can often be blocking um, because um, it doesn't fit the isomorphism. And let me give you a really specific example. Um, the NGO in India, Pratham, has developed a set of techniques called learning at the right level. So one thing you, if you go into Indian schools at all, and MindSpark uh, has helped a lot in documenting this even more, but it was pretty obvious even in the ASER evaluations, is the amazing heterogeneity of what students in a given grade know. 
So we had this isomorphism of age grade classrooms. Well, if you're in six, if you're a six-year-old, you should be in first grade, and then when you're seven years old, you should be in second grade. When you're eight years old, you should be in third grade. And so we isomorphed into automatic progression. Let's just get kids in at the age-appropriate level and let's push them through the system. Well, if you push the kids through the system, but they have heterogeneous learning profiles, meaning some aren't learning that much a year and some are, then by the time you're in grade four or five, um, and you know the evaluation of MindSpark being done by Kartik is showing that in a typical eighth grade classroom in uh, Rajasthan, you have kids at the second grade level and a few kids at the eighth grade level, and the average is fourth grade. So what is, you know, Pratham comes in and says, actually, the teaching that we should be doing to these students is different than to these students is different to those students. So instead of breaking the kids up by age grade, let's break them up by ability level. Let's teach all those at the second grade level together, all those at the fourth grade level, all those at the eighth grade level together. Right. What happens? No, can't do that. That's not how we do schools. A school is a grade. That's what a school means. That's our... And so you actually get blocked from purpose-driven activity by a compliance-driven mentality. And until you flip out of compliance-driven mentality, you can actually block yourself from doing things that in this context would actually be super important. Because after all, the age grade classroom works well if in fact you have the capability to keep kids on a relatively homogeneous learning trajectory. If you don't do that, then the reorganization of instruction along ability lines versus uh, grade age lines can have enormous and immediate impacts. But, you know, I have to say, Pratham's been at this for more than 20 years in India, and it still fits and starts because people just think school should look like this, right? I should walk into a school and I should see a classroom of all kids in the same grade, all roughly the same age, because that's what a school looks like. <clears throat> but that's just pure isomorphism. It doesn't actually necessarily. It probably had some causal rationale, which is why you did it that way. But if that's not working, you've got to do something different, even if it looks not like a school looks. So people have lots of mental models on how this should be. It could be based on past experience. It could be based on you right. know visuals, right. and which is why like the segmentation of age uh, in a certain grade is there. But what we're seeing is tremendous heterogeneity in learning levels, even with homogeneity in socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. Right, people from the same village, same caste, yeah. same economic situation, same etc., yeah. are still having very different learning right. levels. But it's being hard to break out of this mold, even though the purpose is clear, which is every child should be learning well, right. because of this rigid sort of mental models that are already in place. No, that's right. And, and, and you know, what, what's kind of funny is that we have, we have all these mental models in our head, and we often don't force them to say, well, why do I believe this about this and that about that? So, for instance, anybody who's been a parent realizes your kids are just different. And you actually need to treat, the, even if you have the same objective for how your kid wanted to grow up, you actually need to treat them differently. And then we think, well, wait a second. Schooling is a lot about encouraging kids. The idea that we can have a homogeneous model for all kids, and yet we have a completely heterogeneous model, completely child-specific for parenting, if you start to add those up, it's like, why would I think, why would I have those two metal models? But as a parent, each kid has to be treated because each kid is an individual with their own characteristics and ways of you know, getting things done with them is different. 
you know, I only have three kids, and I spend a huge range of the possible ways in which we could teach them or get them to do things. Um, we should expect that in the classroom, but in some sense, we go to school and like, no, 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 homogeneity, uh, you know, we can teach all this, you know, 40 kids in a fourth grade classroom exactly the same thing, independently of how they come into the classroom. So, but, but we inherit these mental models which translate into kind of internalized norms of, you know, what teaching means, and then we don't actually rethink, is that really effective? What is termed as foundational literacy and numeracy, and what's the importance of it for a country like India? So I'm not quite sure what other people mean, but I mean something really specific. So what, you know, as part of the RISE program we've started to emphasize is universal, early, conceptual and procedural mastery of basic skills, which is a long set of words, but each one of them is important. And that's what I mean by foundational learning. Because what we find is that when you look at these learning trajectories, um, you know, we think, well, by grade 10, we want them to be here. It turns out, if you don't start out steep, you can't get there. Um, so I think what we mean by foundational is when other countries perform badly on the PISA, which is given at age 15, they often make the unbelievable but kind of understandable in some ways mistake of saying, oh, I need to worry about what they're learning at 13 and 14. It's like, no, <laughs> you need to learn about, worry about what they're learning at five and six. Because if you've gotten to fourth grade and you can't read fluently, you know, the learning profile, this is the learning per year of schooling just flattens out. So we have this really interesting new paper from the RISE Research in Indonesia that shows just exactly flat learning profiles from grades 5 to 11. So they're testing in a cohort, in a non-school setting, the ability of like 18 to 24-year-olds to do simple arithmetic. And I mean simple arithmetic, like the question one-third minus one-sixth equals. And what you see, either of the kids currently enrolled or of the cohort by their cumulative attainment, is that you kind of learn something from first to fifth, and then from fifth to 11th, it doesn't go up at all. And it doesn't plateau at 80, it plateaus at 40% right. So, and my conjecture is, if you don't understand it conceptually, we can't build on that foundation. You know, if you pour sand as a foundation, you can't build a five-story building because as you put weight on it, it crumbles. So what I, mean by, what I mean by foundational learning is universal, early, grades one to four are the main focus, maybe even grades one to three, because if that learning profile isn't steep in those first three years, everything else can be pointless. Literally, you know, so literally in Indonesia, they, one in five more children was completing secondary schooling. The performance of the cohort on the simple arithmetic didn't improve at all. So you pushed a whole bunch of people through a whole bunch more years of schooling, but the learning profile was completely flat. And I think one of the reasons it was flat is they didn't get the foundation, the conceptual mastery in the foundations, which meant as you tried to build, it just, boom, it petered off. If you didn't, if you didn't get fractions, 
which is not an easy thing to get, by the way. If you didn't get fractions in grades one to five, you just don't get fractions. And, and you stay in, and you know teachers are using fractions, and they're expecting you to know fractions. But if you didn't get it, you didn't get it, and you don't get it. It just flattens out. We see the same thing, by the way, coming out of the MindSpark evaluation that maybe Kartik talked about. But the bottom third of the class in Rajasthan is learning nothing from a year of schooling in the control group. And that's because I think a lot of them, the instruction, they don't have the foundations to get the eighth grade instruction. So I think it's super important. And here, again, I think this is a space in which education initiatives has been really important because they've been emphasizing the difference between just accepting, assessing procedural mastery from conceptual mastery. And you notice universal early conceptual and procedural. So we're not saying you should just understand the concept of fractions. You should understand the concept of fractions and be able to work with those concepts in practice. Proficiency. You, do it you should get enough. proficient. You should yeah. do it fast enough that then that skill set becomes an integral part of a skill set you can build on. So again, by foundational, I mean conceptual and procedural. Because um, if you don't get that, <coughs> just everything else... So, you know, there is a big problem that people are responding to the low learning levels and the low, you know, achievement by, you know, grade 10 by focusing either on, oh, we tested them in 10, they don't know, let's teach them better in 8 and 9. No, no, no. Or they're low at 10, let's keep them in for 11 and 12. No! It's like, fix it back where it has to be fixed and it's got to be super steep in the early. And it's, I think... People need to focus on teaching less, but with more conceptual mastery. Because if you have a curriculum that has too many kind of topic areas, you don't necessarily get to actual conceptual um, mastery of even what you're teaching because you're rushing through. Kids maybe get to where they can algorithmically kind of reproduce on a test something. But like a lot of kids they just never actually got the concept of place. They never understood that 326 was three of units of 100, two of units of 10, and six of units of one in a deep conceptual way. So if you don't get that, sooner or later, your foundation will crumble and you won't be able to do sophisticated things with numbers. And you might, in fourth grade, be able to get 60% right on a set of algorithmic questions presented in exactly identical ways about doing long division because you're just kind of imitating the algorithm. But if you didn't get the foundational conceptual learning, it's gonna break down. It's like building a house on sand. It's just gonna, you know, it can sustain a certain level, but then after that, it's just gonna collapse. But Lent, how hard could it be to like teach you know children subtraction and uh, I mean it, it doesn't seem like it's very complex, right? We've been able to send a man to the moon and back. I mean, how hard could it be to teach children grades one to three all the foundational learning literacy and numeracy concepts that you talk about? That's a great question, um, and I think it has a lot of truth to it because when, as part of our research, we look at data that's emerged from a large-scale set of surveys around the world that have asked exactly a literacy question in exactly the same way, exactly the same populations, we can see that around the world, um, some countries with very low income 
like Rwanda, 100% of people who made it to grade six and then stopped can read as adults. In Nigeria, 11% can. So what we see is from the same amount of schooling, even again among countries at relatively similar levels of socioeconomic development, it really can be done. You know, Vietnam is really producing learning outcomes that are the equivalent of, you know, countries like um, uh, the UK and the US and the, kind of the OECD norm. So it really can be done. So then the question is not how hard is it to do it, but how hard is it to construct a system where the natural outcome of the operation of the system is getting it done? And I think one of the key questions is, was the system ever really built to do it? You talk a lot about systems of education. You are the Directorate for Research in Improving Systems of Education, RISE. What do you mean by systems of education? <laughs> Which is a great question. I think most times when I hear the word system, I think they're bluffing and don't know what they're talking about. It's sort of, let's use a word that's kind of abstract enough you'll nod because you won't want to push. Um, However, when I, when I talk about a system, I have in mind a very definite structure. What I mean by a system is who are the relevant actors and how are the relevant actors linked by feedback loops. The citizens can aggregate their wishes through a relationship of accountability we call politics. How do citizens convey so that politicians feel they have objectives in education? then the politicians and the executive apparatus of the state has to convey to an organization another relationship of accountability. Here, Ministry of Education, here's the budget you have, here's what we want you to do, right? Then the ministry has to convey to all of the frontline workers all the way up and down an accountability chain to where a teacher in a school is in an accountability relationship with a ministry, and if it's a private sector, they're in an accountability relationship with a smaller organization, maybe just a school, and they're embedded in an accountability relationship. And then there's another connection, which is there's a direct connection between the parent and the student and the school, and we call that client power or citizen power directly through voice and choice. Voice via your voice in a public sector system, choice if you opt out into the private system. And that's the system of education. It's a set of actors, each of which influences outcomes in various ways. It's a set of structured relationships, which we call relationships of accountability. And each relationship of accountability can be strong or weak because of its analytical design. And all the relationships have four or five elements. And so we can name what those elements are. Professor Lant, uh, what are randomized controlled trials? A randomized controlled trial is just a technique for evaluating the impact of anything you might want to do, whether it's at the school level, at the system level, at the student level, and then you randomly allocate who is going to be exposed to the treatment or intervention and who isn't going to be exposed. And it's an important tool for eking out of the reality what was the true causal impact. What are some research questions that have been answered uh, by using the tools of an RCT? So, that said, uh, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure I would phrase it that way. Uh, it's not like we had questions that didn't have answers and now we have answers. They have contributed to an ongoing process of debate and evidence um, that has existed for a long time. So for instance, there's 
several famous RCTs, um, Esther and Michael Kramer and I think Pascal Dupas did an interesting study in Kenya of contract teachers. And by being able to randomize which students were exposed to the contract teachers and the non-contract teachers, they could get an estimate of the impact of contract teachers. Now, if you ask me, did that answer the question of contract teachers? Well, that's a little strong. We had had at least a dozen evaluated experiences of contract teachers, and everything that they found with respect to contract teachers was already relatively well known in the literature. So you really would say, we're more confident in the answer that we already had. Same thing with private schools. You know, uh, there had been lots of studies of what is the causal impact of a child attending a private school versus a non-private school. Uh, along came Kartik Muraladharan has done a famous and quite well done study of public versus private schools and has estimated an effect. The effect that he's estimated is roughly what you would have thought the answer was had you been reading the literature in which people had tried other ways of eking out causal identification. So I think one can overstate how new and revolutionary these studies are because it's not as if, I mean, A, it's important to recognize that the first RCTs in economics were done in 1968, not 1978-88-1968. There's been a long tradition of evaluating social policy through RCTs. B, economists have always understood, since at least the Cowles Foundation and other pioneering efforts at econometrics, that observational data didn't net the correlations in the data didn't reveal causation. Again, that's, that's, that's a cliche. So I think RCTs have honed the evidence in some ways. They have contributed to ongoing answers, but in lots of the areas in which they've come to answers, they're pretty near the answer that kind of I, as an educated person who'd been working in the field for 20 years, would have had before the experiment. And what happens after an RCT? Like, what is the purpose of it? Uh, how do governments look at it? How do researchers look at it? How do practitioners look at it? Uh, if you could paint us a picture on, you know, what happens after an RCT. Jack all. Um, uh, meaning, again, I don't, there's this <clears throat> kind of rhetoric and it is mostly rhetoric as opposed to actually, I mean, the paradoxical nature of the evidence-based movement is there's no evidence for the evidence-based movement itself. It's a faith-based movement in evidence. <laughs> so, um, and for instance, <clears throat> let's, <laughs> this uh, study of contract teachers in Kenya. So, you know, two of the three Nobel Prize, recent Nobel Prize winners do a study. It's a well-causally identified study showing for sure, hard to doubt that hiring these contract teachers are gonna produce better learning outcomes in their reduction of class size. Meaning if you reduce class size by hiring a contract teacher, it'll have more learning impact than hiring an additional civil service teacher. And the likely causal mechanism is because they're more accountable to the parents in the, in the school because they know if they don't perform, their contract won't be renewed. Again, all causal mechanisms that we understood from the experiences in India and elsewhere. Okay, they did that study, great. Now, the reason I part, partly started with this study is then the government said, great, let's scale that up. <clears throat> and the only RCT of the impact of an RCT 
is they did an RCT of what happened when they scaled the evidence of the original RCT. You, anybody who's been following education for a length of time can guess what happened. When they tried to scale it up as a nationwide program as something being done by some researchers and an NGO in some corner of Kenya, the teachers went ballistic, opposed it politically, and int super interestingly, half of the RCT scale-up was done by an NGO and half of the RCT scale-up was done through regular government mechanisms. And the finding of the RCT, of the impact of the RCT, is when the government did it, it had no effect. I see. Zero effect. So the government implementing the same intervention as had been evaluated, uh, you know, it had like 0.2 effect size effect in their study. When the NGO scaled it up, it had about 0.2 effect size. When the government scaled it up, bupkis, zero, zilch, nada. It didn't have any impact. But we also know that it's incredibly difficult politically to make a contract teacher program happen at scale with a government. So again, what are the answers coming out of RCTs? Kind of the answers coming out of RCTs, both about the original finding and about the impact of the RCT, are kind of what a reasonably informed academic and or even reasonably evidence-informed policymaker knew beforehand. And so when you say what, what's the impact of these RCTs, it, it, it's not obvious that having this powerful RCT evidence that contract teachers um, uh, we actually hope you are enjoyed causally this conversation. effective. And if you like this podcast, do make sure to subscribe to us. You can also check out our entire video series as well on youtube.com slash EI videos. This is not the world of medicine. In the world of medicine, there's a whole scheme of practitioners out there that if you provide them a pill that's certified to work, the whole delivery chain of the pill is waiting for the pill. Right. You've got pharmaceutical companies who produce it. You've got pharmaceutical companies who get it to doctors. You've got doctors who are more than happy to prescribe it to their patients. You've got patients who, reimbursed or otherwise, will likely buy it. So they have and, the faith that when they take it, they'll get better. They have the faith that when they take it, they get better. Um, so you know when you they, when you use the analogy, oh, randomized control trials have been really effective in improving health. Yes because in many instances, the true constraint on improved health performance was in fact an, you know, an efficacious medicine. Right. That's just not a good description of many of the what ails and what separates out high performing from a low performing education systems. So a role play, if, okay, if, yes. if yeah. I'm a principal secretary yeah. of a large Indian state, I have 50,000 schools right. that I'm responsible for, I have, <laughs> You know, my own team that's sort of doing their own show. But I have a whole bunch of civil society organizations, mm. companies that are coming to pitch me yeah. ideas, products, mm -hmm. on how I can improve the learning of my right. schools. Right. And if one of them comes and tells me that, hey, there's an RCT done, like from the lens of a public administrator in India responsible for 50,000 schools and maybe, you know, two and a half million children studying in those what should I be thinking about uh, from an, from, about an RCT? Now, you're an enlightened IAS officer, you want to improve learning outcomes. I come to you with six different, six different people come to me and they're pitching different interventions, right? right? Interventions or programs or projects or whatever. I would ask as an IAS officer, when I implement this, how, what, how am I gonna learn in the implementation whether or not it works. 
Right. What's going to be my learning process about the efficacy of this intervention in this context? And that's super important for two reasons. One, um, and this now is going to get super geeky, um, you know, the impact of uh, a, a specific education intervention actually depends on the details. The devil is really in the deal. So, so if we imagine, well, what's the impact? So if you ask me the question, I'm going to do a teacher training program. What's going to be the impact? It's like, I don't know. It depends on how you do it. And then if somebody comes and says, well, I've done this teacher training program, and I've evaluated this teacher training program in some other place, and now we're going to bring it to a district in Gujarat, I'm like, well... I don't know that it's transportable because a lot of the background features that may have enabled the success of this intervention may not be present in Gujarat. Two, you know, we have some evidence that, uh, of this uh, literacy program in Uganda that is really interesting because they did an RCT of uh, early reading intervention in Uganda, which is a terrific endeavor. They found standard deviation size effect sizes. And anybody who's listening to the podcast and understands effect sizes is going to go, wow, full standard deviation. Like if you can discover 0.1 or 0.2, you're like chuffed and, oh, wow, I got a big effect. Okay. Standard deviation sized um, <clears throat> effects. Okay. Terrific. Let's scale that up. Well, when they went to think about scaling, they realized they were spending more than total spending per child just on this early literacy program. Well, we can't really scale it at the cost at which we evaluated it. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to change the program as little as we can possibly change it and still get cost down. So they did that. When they evaluated the scaled out lower cost version, it had negative effects. Oh. So um, the, what RCTs do is if you think of a design space, right? I, I, so think of a car, right? If someone says, what's the performance of a car? You'd go, well, it depends on how the car is designed. So a car, any given car is an instance of a design space of possible cars. Right. So you can imagine two dimensions of a design space of a car are its transmission and its engine, right? And if I put in a huge engine but have a crappy transmission, I don't get good performance. I put in a great transmission, crappy engine, I don't get good performance. I've got interactive features. And then there's the performance over the design space. So part of the question is, does performance over the design space look like Kansas or does it look like the Himalayas? Right? Because if it looks like Kansas, it kind of doesn't matter how, where you measure in Kansas, how high Kansas is. Kansas is about the same height because it's flat. Right. Right? And so I can extrapolate. I measured how high Kansas was here. I'm pretty confident if I take it 10 miles, even 100 miles, I'm pretty confident it's the same height. So that's moving an intervention, right, in the design space. So if I were an IS officer, I'm more worried about what's my learning mechanism as I adapt the program to my context than I am tremendously impressed that somewhere in some other context it was able to achieve uh, impact. Professor Lant, what research methods should be used to evaluate whether something should be implemented in our schools or not? So I'd take that question maybe up or back a step and say, 
What learning methods should be used as we search for what will make our schools better? Because learning methods are going to involve, um, I have a paper that I wrote and it's titled, It's All About Me. And my wife really liked that title because she figured it's the only honest title academics can have. Um, it's all about them. And no, no, no. What I mean by me is monitoring, experiential learning, and impact evaluation. Those are three elements of a learning strategy. Monitoring tracks what you're doing, tracks what the inputs are, tracks what the activities are, tracks what the outputs are, tracks what the outcomes are. And if you've got, built a monitoring system for learning purposes, meaning I want the monitoring data to provide me feedback on how you're doing, that's like having you know, instruments in your car. Like I can learn stuff about how well my car is working by looking and seeing what the instruments are telling me in real time. Then, once you have monitoring built to learn, then you can use experiential learning. You can say, gee, there's all these elements of design that I'm not quite sure where I am in terms of the response of to, to, on learning, so let me vary within the program. I'll, you know, if I'm doing it in 30 schools, I'll do 10 schools this way, 10 schools that way, 10 schools that way, and I'll, through my integration of monitoring data and experiential learning, I'm learning what's working across my schools, I'll adapt. Then, as you've eventually, you search over the design space, you might want to do an impact evaluation to be sure that where you're coming to in terms of your learning method um, in the right direction. Is in fact right. Yeah. So, you know, so you don't, but the, the hard question facing an IAS officer or an NGO or anybody who's trying to be effective is how do I build the right sequence of learning methods so that, because, you know, the advocates of RCTs were exactly right in the sense that if you don't build any learning method, you can just keep doing what you're doing and never improve performance. We don't want that. You're also right that you, if you just build feedback loops from, say, inputs to activities and never really get to outputs and outcomes, you can do a lot and you get better at doing the activities, but you're not sure the activities have the causal impact you want. So the question is, how long am I going to learn and how? And when in that sequence is the research method of an impact evaluation the integral part of your strategy? I think part of what's happened is that people have gotten, con con and by the way, all of this learning strategy can involve an RCT. I can randomize within my project and say, okay, I'm gonna try these two different design features and industry does all this time is called A-B testing. Like if Google wants to say, Who's, are you more likely to respond to this ad or that ad? Well, fortunately they get a billion hits a day so they can say, well, we'll expose equivalent searches to this versus that and see what happens, and they can learn. So the question is, what's your learning strategy? How long does that go before you lock into a method and want to do an impact evaluation? Right. I think what happened in the first generation of the enthusiasm of the RCTs is they pulled the RCT up too early in the learning process, right? right. So, <clears throat> so you know, NGOs would come to donors or governments would say, oh, gee, I'm going to do this new thing. Let's do an RCT with it. Probably not the right learning strategy. You probably should have at least, I would guess, three to five years of piloting, adapting, doing the M 
monitoring and experiential learning before you then come in and look, because the problem with an RCT is you have to lock into an intervention. Right. You gotta say, this is the point in the design space I believe works, let's fix that and hold it fixed long enough we can do the impact which takes often one to two years. So, you know, a lot of what happened in the RCT literature is they discovered things didn't work. Right. Like, well, wait a second. Of course lots of things don't work. Like if you think, what's the, think of all the possible design space. Most of it has to be zero, right? Yeah. Most of it has to not work. So when you come back and you said, I tried this and it doesn't work, I'm like, and I learned what exactly from that? I knew lots of things didn't work. So you've added to my stock of knowledge that something that I didn't have any particular reason to believe would work did work. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I kind of wanted to... So I think where the field is moving and where, in fact, the people doing RCTs are moving is rather than thinking of RCT as a tool that's exclusively used in an independent impact evaluation and the independent impact evaluation is a research method and a learning method, they now acknowledge that you need a long period of adaptation with learning methods that can include an RCT but aren't an independent impact evaluation. It's actually researchers working together with the implementing partner to say, how do we adapt the program to become effective? So that was a long, complicated answer, and, but the short answer is you should have learning methods. One of those is a research method, but research, not all of them are research methods. Some of them are just practical. And I think in the sequence of learning methods, you should hold yourself eventually to a standard of being able to demonstrate impact um, through a rigorous causal identification, but you shouldn't necessarily start with that. And you know, when you look at the literature that's been produced by the randomized control trial crowd, um, the kind of dirty little secret of this is that a lot of the things that they evaluate that are effective have actually been in an experiential learning process for 10 to 20 years before they do the impact evaluation. So they did this famous paper in Science Magazine, not about education, but about anti-poverty programs where they evaluated in five different countries a livelihoods program. Well, that livelihoods program had been pioneered by BRAC for at least 20 years before they started the RCT, which you know makes my three to five look really like a reasonable crawl the design space learning phase before one begins a research method of an RCT. So if I'm a social entrepreneur yes. in the education space, yes. wanting to yes. you know, help improve things, yeah. I should tinker around with my idea for about three to five years, different settings, keep observing, look at leading indicators. It could be usage, it could be feedback, it could be multiple things. Maybe you know, at the end of three to five years when I have version three or version five, I sort of engage in uh, RCT-like uh, evaluation, maybe list out three or four different you know, uh, parameters on which you know, I would like to measure impact, do that, learn from that, do some more. And at what point do I go to that principal secretary and say, I'm all sorted, you can now feel confident of rolling this out in 40,000 schools? Does that point come? Does Wait, it come in year so, 10? Does it, what, approximately? So, A, that's exactly right. 
meaning, and to some extent, if you think in a non-education space, how does venture capital work? How does, why does the, it, you know, the, the private sector often gets to really effective things because a thousand things fail. Like Google didn't emerge full blown. Uh, there were at least 10 firms actively searching in the space of how does one effectively search the internet and Google happened to hit on the right one. But there were lots of people out there trying to like do, how do we tinker around with what works exactly? So, you know, that, that, that process is how does one innovate? How does one evaluate what's working and how does one scale? And I think what, again, the, the RCT can get overblown in its relative role in it because it's not the innovation. It's not even the first step evaluation of the innovation. It's the evaluation of what has emerged from a long complex series of things. Then secondly, I would think when you start to <clears throat> get, when you feel relatively confident that what you're having is working and your M and your monitoring experiential learning is telling you it's, it's working, and then you do <laughs> RCT, <coughs> then I think you can feel comfortable going to a principal secretary, going to a policymaker and saying, we have pretty rigorous evidence that this works in the way that we're doing it, but you know, the, the, you don't turn off the M&E process and then say, we're just gonna mindlessly implement this for the rest of time. So again, no matter how much confidence you have that it has worked in a context to a certain extent, you still wanna keep alive the process of what I'm, because even if I demonstrate in an RCT that it works, we're not confident that it couldn't work better. Because again, if you're searching over the Himalayas, I can have climbed up to a mountain that was 5,000 meters tall and think, wow, I'm really tall versus sea level. And then you look and go, holy schmoly, there's a really, another really tall peak over there that if I've stopped searching, I'll never find. Right. So I would never recommend a principal secretary or anyone turn off the process of continual search for improvement through the monitoring evaluation, monitoring experiential learning and impact evaluation. So you wanna keep that alive because you know, you're, you're tinkering around. Um, after all, if you look at products that are much better today than they were 30 years ago, like cars, it's just been a series of tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. So carburation on cars is just unbelievably better than it was 30 years ago. Not something I know a lot of people think about, but you know, when you turn your car on, how much fuel it's using and how much how much pollution it's producing depend a lot on how it's carbureted. Right. Carburation has just made enormous progress, all tinkering. There's been no breakthrough, there's been no scientific discovery, just tinker, 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 and you get better. Sometimes in the case of the carburetor, the tinkering getting better is because mm -hmm. you have sophisticated, um, you know, uh, assessment tools that tell exactly. you that it produced less pollution. But in the education sector, we don't have that laser sharp tools that could help us measure micro improvements, right? Because most of the assessment tools, the error margin on the assessment itself is sometimes so large that the tinkering, even if it made an improvement, <coughs> one is just not able to, I mean, it's on the fuel gauge, you know, you don't have yeah, it yeah. to the decimals. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. 
one set of assessment tools is are teachers getting feedback that assess the child's conceptual understanding of the points being taught in a way that provides him and her feedback as to where, whether this student is improving. There, I think, um, groups like Education Initiatives and other are, in fact, they might not be the laser sharp, but they're getting to sharper tools for saying, what are the conceptual underpinnings that I'm trying to convey in order that this child have a skill or capability? And how do I assess whether or not that child's got, has reached those conceptual understandings in a way that they can apply the skill? And what does that feedback loop have on how I'm teaching that child? I think we're making enormous progress on that, but because we're looking for it, right? Because unless you say, here is what I want to know, I have a clear um, idea of what it is I want the child to emerge knowing and doing, and therefore I can use assessment tools. So I think on that front, I think it's more getting the teachers to have themselves a clear understanding of what the conceptual skill set they want their students to have and providing them with tools. So for instance, my wife is a high school choral music teacher and she's worked in private schools in India, she's worked in public schools in America. Um, If you say, does she not have adequate assessment instruments about how well the students are singing? Yeah, she does. She has her ear. She listens and she says, you're singing flat. You two aren't harmonizing, right? So is that razor sharp? It's sharp enough that she can work with a child. She can hear not only how the children are singing each child, but she can hear how they're singing as a group. And believe me, she can, she can take any group of individuals and have them singing much better very fast because she's got real feedback on performance and she understands what the target is. We want to be able to sing this <laughs> piece of music and have people want to listen to it, which is a high target for middle schoolers, but she achieves it sometimes. But her um, ear is not replicable. It's not available to other teachers. But it is trainable. I mean, is it replicable? But at the scale of 9 million teachers in the Indian education That's, system, would you be able so to... So this is a super important yeah. point, right? Um, so, one, because... <clears throat> so, because it's a super important point, because you want to say, um, what kind of just does the teacher have to bring to the table? What tools can they be equipped with, and is it trainable? And I, I think we've gone... Uh, a little bit overboard in expecting everything to be objectively. So, you know, I don't think our goal should be that a man or woman off the street can walk in and teach as long as they follow the tools. We should expect that a music teacher actually knows music and has an ear for it and starts with some initial level of capability and we augment and train a bit their initial interest and ability, right? So, I think a lot of those things are trainable, though. Um, she can teach other people how to teach music better. Is it reducible to a formula? Is it reducible to a computer program? No. Is it trainable to some extent? But then we have to ask ourselves, what's the recruitment retention process we're using for attracting teachers into teaching such that we get 
we attract and retain the people that have the skill sets we need. Um, and I think we've overestimated the extent to which we can just take any raw material lump of clay and turn them into an excellent teacher versus how much we want to search for people that have the potential to be excellent teachers and equip them with the right tools. But I still think there are tools. And on that front, I think we are making progress. I think, um, I think the early experiences, and I, I don't mean to promote this in particular, but the, I mean, other things like it, but EI's experience with developing a MindSpark success, when you do develop superior in-classroom diagnostic tools to assess the students, not just procedural, but conceptual mastery, you can actually induce better teaching. Whether that better teaching is online or whether that better teaching is with teachers, it can be done both ways. I think the first issue is actually more pressing in some sense of how do we equip the people in the classroom with the information they need to make real-time feedback loops in their own teaching. And that has a really important part of that is, and which I think is lacking in many low-performing systems, is <clears throat> does the teacher have a clear idea of what the student should be able to know and do when, when she's done a good job. Hmm. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for you know, a very enlightening talk on uh, what is a system of education, how can it be improved, what is the role of research and practice uh, that jointly works together as it crawls the design space <laughs> looking for solutions. Um, the definition of a randomized control trial and how to use it with care uh, this has been a very enlightening talk. Uh, thank you so much for devoting your time to this. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you like this podcast, do make sure to subscribe to us. You can also check out our entire video series as well on youtube.com slash eivideos.